thank you for listening to Waypoint Community Church Podcasts. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Waypoint. My name is Blair. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are serving communion today. This is a, a practice that we do consistently, and we've kind of headed into communion in a lot of different ways over the years. Sometimes we spend the whole morning talking about communion before we do it. Uh, sometimes we'll find an element that we think adds meaning and purpose uh, to the communion, then we do it. And then sometimes we've talked about something that felt completely unrelated, and then the communion was a response. Uh, as I was thinking about all the different types of communion we've done, I realized that one of the things that we haven't done over the years is we've never talked about why it's important or valuable to do this on a regular basis. Jesus said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say how often, is it once a year, is it every day? But that's left out. But the reason behind, the motive that he would look at us and say, I want you to do this on a regular basis to remember me is what I wanna talk about today. And we're gonna get there in a roundabout way. If you've been at Waypoint for a while, you've heard me say this before, and so um, you'll be patient with me, right? But if, um, if not, if you haven't been here in a while, 20 minutes into this, the thought is gonna cross your mind. Where is he going? What does this have with communion? And what is happening this morning, all right? Those are all normal thoughts. Just trust me, we'll turn a corner at some point and all of it will start to make sense. Okay, so I'm just going to ask you to hang in there with me. We're going to kind of grab piece by piece by piece, put it together, and then something at the end will make sense is what we're hoping for. Okay, I want to start with the first piece by going to a story in Genesis. It's early in Genesis 13. God has tapped Abram and said, I want you to leave your home country. We don't know how we did this, but I want you to leave your home country. I want to take you to a land, and I'm going to build you into a nation. God wants him to be a representative for um, God in the world. And so he goes, I want you to do this, and Abram does. He goes to what we would now call Israel. There's a famine there, and so he leaves there and goes to Egypt for a while. And while he's in Egypt, he accumulates a lot of wealth. And what that means in this day and age was that meant he had a lot of livestock. Now, the scriptures also said that he came out of Egypt with a bunch of silver and gold, too. So he's done well. He's done well. And we're going to pick up the place where he comes out of Egypt back into what we would now refer to as Israel. And he's doing this with a guy who's followed him the whole time. He had a nephew named Lot. Lot went with him to Israel, went with him to Egypt, and apparently both of them did really well while they were in Egypt. And there's a tension that starts between the two of them that we pick up in Genesis chapter 13, verse 6. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Believe it or not, they have a first world problem in the ancient world, right? They have so much stuff they don't know what to do with it. Like, this is like a couple saying, there's so much stuff in our house, we need to buy the house next door so I can live there and you can live there and we can have all of our stuff. That's what's going on here. They're just loaded and they've got a problem. The land that they're on, they're, obviously if they're both loaded, that means they both have large herds. There's a limited amount of grazing land. And so a conflict is starting, verse 7, and quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. 
And so they've got arguments going on about who's going to go where, who's get the best place, when are your animals going to be at the well, when are our, and all, you have all of these conflicts going. Abram, um, it's family. He wants to maintain civil relationships. And so he comes up with an idea that gets presented in verse 9. Is not the whole land before you? He's talking to his nephew Lot. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. What Abram is proposing here is unthinkable. Uh, let me try to put this in terms that you would understand. At least this is how it works in our house. Let's talk about pie, all right? Um, when it comes to slicing pie at your house, is it as serious as it is at our house, right? Um, if I were allowed to cut pie, this is how I would do it. I know they make those things where you slide it down and it's perfect. No, no, that's not how I want to do it because this is how I would like to see this turn out. Yes! Right? But my wife takes dessert very seriously. Right? So this doesn't work. And we've had to come up with a system. Come up with a system. By the way, we've had to do this with our kids too. Right? One person cuts and the other person chooses. And that way, if you don't cut right, they're going to get the bigger piece. And so you're doing your best to get it as, as good as possible because you don't want to get ripped off because they're going to get the first choice, right? But listen, it doesn't matter if this is pizza. You can cut pizza any way you want. You just keep bringing that stuff out of the oven until everybody's full, right? Keep eating. I don't care if it's a small slice. You'll get another one. It's unlimited. But pie isn't. Pie is a limited thing. You don't just give that out until people are full. You get a piece. And so... Who cuts it is serious. It's insane in our house to think that the same person would cut and choose first. Litigation, arbitration, all kinds of grand statements about unfairness would happen, and then the kids would get involved, right? That, I mean, it's that kind of serious. This is what Abram proposes. Lot, I'm going to let you Cut it and pick it. Look at verse 10. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Do you see how that's described? It's well watered. It's like Eden. It's like Egypt. And that's saying something. One of the reasons that Roman Empire became so big is they had a ready source of food that could support everything that they were doing, that would support their poor people. They got most of that grain from Egypt. It, it grew incredible amounts of food there. If they're saying this land is that incredible, they're saying something. This is, whoa, look at this. And then, <laughs> verse 11, look at what Lot does. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan, right? He took the whole pie. Couldn't you have split it down the middle, right? Couldn't you have cut it and said, hey, there's a good piece for you and a good piece for me. That's not what he did. He took the whole piece. Where did Abram end up? Verse 18, Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent 
There he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, so I want you to see, I want you to see this. Um, it's going to be on the screens too, but just so you understand where we're at and what's happening here. Okay, there were other people living in Israel at this time. So all of this place was inhabited. So these guys were living in this area down here. See all the brown? That's not a good sign. That's, that's desert wilderness area. And that's where two guys with lots of flocks were trying to survive with each other. And it wasn't working. So Lot goes over here into this valley. There's Zor right there. Now listen, this whole area would not get great rainfall. But this valley has something going for it. All the rain that would fall here, all the rain that would fall here would run down into here. And so whatever rain came, they would at least get twice as much, three times as much, maybe even more if it ran for a far ways. This was well-watered, great land. And this is, this is what's happening. Here's Hebron over here, and you're like, oh, look, it's green. He must be doing pretty good. This is forest Fir trees. Have you ever been in a forest with fir trees? What grows underneath there? Nothing, right? All the petals fall down and makes it a sheet of needles and nothing grows. This, this would have been what Abram was left with. And Lot went down to this whole valley that was well watered and great. And so we see early in the scriptures, that the land is divided based on some geography, all right? Um, I want you to put that in the back of your head because we're going to come back to it. We're going to have more to say about that. I want to take you to 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 11, uh, Solomon is the king, and he's doing well. God has been blessing him. He's been blessing him because David, um, David loved God. And God was trying to honor David by really blessing Solomon. And so the whole of Solomon's reign, there was not a single war. We're told that Solomon was one of the wisest people that ever lived. Nobody matched his wisdom. He's being blessed upon blessing that God is rolling into his life. And despite that, Solomon chooses to be disobedient to God. To say, oh, I'm going to kind of do this my way, go my direction. And God looks at this and says, listen, I made I made a pact with David that I would, I would extend his name, that I would give him a nation. But this Solomon guy, who I've given so many blessings to, I cannot let this go unanswered. And so God comes up with a plan, and in 11, 1 Kings 11, verse 35, we see this. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand. So Solomon can serve out his time, but Solomon's kids aren't going to get to reign. And I'm going to give you 10 tribes. He's talking to a guy named Jeroboam. He's identified another person who could lead 10 tribes of Israel and leave two to keep honoring David and uh, Judah and Benjamin would be left. Okay? So he's like, okay, here we got the plan. I'm going to give you 10 and I'm going to take two. And God presents Jeroboam with some expectations and some stuff that he's going to deliver on um, if he meets God's expectations. They're simple. It's verse 38. If you do whatever I command you, walk in obedience to me, do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands as David my servant did. Listen, he's looking for a co-worker who will come alongside him and, 
and be the kind of person who loved God like David did. That's all he's looking for. I just want you to love me and obey me. I've, give, I've given you my instruction because I care about you. Just do that. And this is what he promises. If you do that, he says, I will be with you, which is reward beyond measure. Like, I'm going to be with you. Incredible. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. Wow. I'll be remembered. I'll be known. You love David. You cared about him. You're extending his kingdom. That could be me. And then he finishes it by saying, I will give Israel to you. All you have to do is obey me. How many of you guys know the name of Jeroboam? Heard a lot about him? Weird, right? Because the scripture said if he just obeyed, he would have a dynasty. What happens? Literally, the first thing he does when God delivers 10 tribes into his hand, disobeys God. Listen, this is, it's incredible. Verse 26 of chapter 12. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Why? Would he think something like that? Well, his thought process went something like this. If people continue to go down to Jerusalem to worship God, they're going to start thinking that that's the nation that they should be loyal to, and I'm going to lose my position as king, somehow ignoring the fact that God had said, if you obey me, I'm going to establish a dynasty with you. Instead of trusting God... He gives into his fear, and he starts building golden calves. He builds two of them, and he puts them in different places in the northern kingdom. And he tells people, it's good enough for you to go and worship there. He sets up high places where they can go and worship other gods. And the nation of Israel goes for it. They choose to start going to these idols, these calves, and they disconnect almost entirely from the uh, southern kingdom. And once again, you see this. We see a split, 10 and 12, where some people are in one place, some people in another place. Um, let me show you on the map again. So all of this up here would have been part of the northern kingdom. And if you're asking, well, how in the world can 10 tribes survive in something like this and only two? Well, that's because this was so fertile. It was so incredible. It was such good land. All of these mountains, all these hills ran this water down into these areas. And it's amazing. And there were two tribes down here because really, you wouldn't fit any other tribes down there if you wanted to. Just to give you a sense of idea of how different these these areas were, I took pictures when I was in Israel of uh, southern and northern Israel, okay? So in northern Israel, you can see all the, again, I'm up high, obviously, I'm on a mountain. These mountains, the water would go in there. They get 25 inches of rain here, and they have water running off the mountains into these areas, and it's hot. The stuff grows. All kinds of things grow here. It's green everywhere. <laughs> and that is southern Israel, where you could go for, I don't know why, but 
there's literally miles and miles of that kind of looking stuff. And the nations are once again broken into a geography thing. Some people are in one place, some people are in another place. And you start to see this play out. By the way, the geography is far less about north and south and east and west. The geography that's being broken into here is in some parts of Israel are just fertile. They're just great. By the way, Israel is a nation 150 miles long, so they have all of this happening in a short period of time. This is like a drive to Indy where it would be like incredible up here and you go down there and it would be a desert, a flat out desert, that, that close. What was happening is the ge geography was these fertile places and these places that weren't so fertile at all. Now here's what's interesting to me. I think God knew this and actually referred to this kind of thing, almost initially. So I want to take you to Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, because uh, God has approached Moses. He's convincing Moses to join his team to go help rescue Israel out of Egypt. And this is what he says, and he's going to describe the land. He says, so I have come down to rescue them. By the way, that is the whole message of the Old Testament and New Testament. If you want to know God's mission in the world, it's to come down and rescue you, to get as close to you as he can. It's right, it's right here. He's been doing this for eons, has a love and a passion for us. Come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. A land flowing with milk and honey. That little descriptor is used 20 different times in the scriptures. The, the place that Israel would go and live was referred to as milk and honey. And I'm convinced that God was referring to geography. Now, uh, you could easily say, well, I thought it was just a sense of general abundance. Well, that's, that is definitely part of it. Uh, but you have to understand uh, the reference to milk. We think cows, wrong, right? That's not happening. You didn't get milk from cows and there just wasn't enough there. Think goats instead. Now, in the southern part of the country, I took this picture when I was down there. These were people who actually had a, these are sheep and goats combined. I'm almost pretty sure that Abram would have had mostly goats. Uh, he might have had some sheep as well. But the idea that you would milk would have been goats. And in, in this, you, I mean, you look at the picture like that. And you're like, what are they eating? Dust? No, this is a desert terrain. So close to the ground, uh, small little like gnarly bushes and cactuses and um, desert type plants. They don't take a lot of water. They're really stiff and abrasive. Uh, they almost have no elasticity to them at all. But here's the thing. A goat can eat anything and I'm not making that up. They will eat your trash and be happy. Um, so a goat in this environment does just fine. But you have to keep them moving because in this part of Israel, they get five inches of rain a year. And if you allow the goat to stand and sit there and eat, they'll eat that plant all the way to the ground and then they'll pull out the roots and eat it and now there's nothing growing. 
Nothing's going to come back for a long time. But if you keep them moving, if you keep them moving, you can walk in big circles and you can feed a flock pretty easily. You just walk in big circles for months on end. Listen, it's a struggle to be a shepherd in this environment. There's no doubt about it. Finding water's hard. Finding um, stuff to eat is difficult because you're going to have to be moving all the time. But it was still something that you could do. It was more freedom than you had in Egypt, and you could sustain your family. In fact, you could have a big crop. Abram did it. Abraham did it. Had a, had a big herds that survived in these environments. Okay? So that's, that's one environment, and that's, the, that's milk. God knew that there were places where you could raise large herds and it was going to be good. Now, in the other parts of northern Israel, I took this picture. That guy is actually in a bucket lift. And there are rows and rows of some sort of fruit tree. I don't even know what that fruit tree was. I saw grapefruit, I saw oranges, I saw bananas. They, they were growing stuff prolifically all through northern Israel because there was so much water and heat. And, and it was everywhere. And so the idea of bees and honey had less to do with the bees and honey and more to do with all the pollination that they would be doing. There would be so much pollination going on, there would be such an abundance of honey because of it. And the fruit would overflow. Now these are the two environments that we have. We have one that's a little bit of a struggle and one where the stuff grows a little bit better. So I wanna say this, because this is gonna be important. These are ancient people which means their lives, all of their lives, are hard. It's a struggle to survive no matter where you are. But it was definitely easier, definitely easier in the place where it rained 25 inches, grew all kinds of stuff, had things for your flocks that you didn't have to walk very far. And, and this has an effect. This has an effect. This, easy kind of thing has an effect on people. In fact, um, you're going to find that it has an effect on the stories I've already told you about. Lot moved to a place where it was just a little easier. Not, I mean, still ancient times, a little easier. And the scriptures record that he lived near a city, which is kind of weird. Because if you have flocks of sheep, which he did or um, goats at the time, you would have to keep those away from the city and move around and all that sort of thing. But because it was a little easier, he started living near the city. And then the scriptures record he moved into the city. What is a, a herder doing in a city? Well, maybe it was going so well, he didn't even have to go and check on it. He just left his guys do it. And what was left on Lot's hands with some time. And what we see is the culture starts impacting Lot. We know that it impacted his family really negatively because a time comes when God decides he's going to punish a few of the towns and one was um, a town that Lot was living in. And as the family flees from that, his wife, instead of desiring, deeply desiring to follow God, her heart is back in the city, 
And she turns back to it, and the scriptures record it costs her her life. Why did that happen? Because it was just a little easier, and so they had some time on their hand, and the culture began to shape who Lot was, and it started to impact his family. It was just a little easier, but it had an effect. Well, what about the northern kingdom? They had it a little easier. I mean, they, they had all of this stuff that could grow. It could support 10 tribes, got lots of rain, all that kind of stuff. Well, is there any indication of something that was happening there? Yeah, a couple things. Longevity and stability. Let me show you this. So in the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes that broke away, they existed as a nation for 210 years and they had 19 kings. If you do the math on that, that king is not serving very long. There were a few who did serve a long time. All that means is that there was a lot of killing going on. They would kill each other to take over the kingship of this. Very little stability, and they survived 210 years before they were taken into captivity. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, was around for 350 years, 140 years longer, and only one more king had all kinds of stability and longevity. Why? What's going on here? Well, if you just go and look at the kings themselves, here's what you'll find. Of the 19 kings in the northern kingdom, not one of them followed God. Not one of them chose to be obedient. And God allowed that nation to fail under the weight of disobedience. But in the southern kingdom, nine out of the 20, that's not even 50%. But do you see what God did because of that? Extended the longevity of how long that nation was around. There was stability. He gave them peace at times. God blessed them because there was an attempt to come back to his heart at times. And, and this resulted in this kingdom being around 140 extra years before they had a string of four kings in a row at the end that were disobedient to God and God allowed them to be taken into captivity too. So here we have it. We have all of this stuff going on, and the question may be coming to your mind, Blair, are you suggesting that the geography had anything to do with Abraham and Lot and the northern southern kingdom and how things played out? I think it absolutely did. I think it did um, because it was just a little easier for each one the northern kingdom, and, the, and for Lot. And why do I think that's an issue? Let me ask you this. When do you find yourself taking people or things for granted in your life? When things are going really well or when things are rocky and difficult? See, when things are tough, you pay attention to those things. Like you work hard to repair it. But, but, but let's say you come home and every night you come home, the dishes are done, your laundry's done, there's food for you, and you never stop and think, man, my mom's working really hard. I should be grateful for this. Instead, you just assume that that's what's going to happen and should be done, and you get upset when it's not. And all of a sudden, she feels hurt 
Because you're taking her for granted instead of understanding all that she does. What happens when you have a client that you've taken care of for a long time and you just think it's a slam dunk? You don't, you don't work at that as hard anymore because they're always going to be your client. They're always going to be somebody that's going to come and use your services. And your effort slides. And they feel it. And they go somewhere else and you're shocked. This happens in marriages too. Where we take each other for granted. We just assume you're going to be here for me. I'm going to be here for you. And this kind of plays out in bad ways for us. Can I just tell you, this happens with God too. And it happened in Lot's life, and it happened in the northern kingdom. See, what happens is um, when, when things are just a little bit easier, it doesn't have to be great, just a little easier, then we start to drift our attention starts to get drawn away into the culture. And you can see this happening in the northern kingdom. You can see this happening with Lot. Their attention started to drift, and the culture started to shape who they were. Their affection started drifting. Was their heart fully inclined towards God? Did they have him at the forefront? No. Their effort starts drifting. They're not going to try. They're not even going to make a trek to Jerusalem anymore. Too much effort. Too much effort to go down there. I can just go to my local one right here. I know it's not God, but it's good enough for me. And over and over you see this happening in people's lives. Listen, here's what I think. This is not an ancient person problem. This is a human being problem. I do this. We do this. And I have good news and I have bad news and they're the same news. We live in the freest, richest country that's ever existed in the world. And I'm not saying your life is easy, but I want to tell you we have it easier. And the threat for us is that we'll forget the importance of who God is. You know why the, the southern kingdom was a blessing even though it didn't look like it? It was a desert, but it was a blessing to those people. You know why? Because they were reminded day after day that God is the one who provides for me. And if God doesn't make it rain, I'm in trouble. And if God can't sustain me, I'm, ah, I'm, ooh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so there was always a sensitivity that uh, we've got to find a way to get back to this God who's going to sustain us. And when they chose to stop doing that, they disappeared as a nation as well, but, but they were around for a long time because they didn't take God for granted. They saw him as a provider in their lives. I think this is one of the reasons we do communion. I think it's one of the reasons that we break our schedule and we do this thing that's repetitive all the time because it gives you a chance to come before God and remember that he's your provider. You wouldn't be where you are without him. You wouldn't be who you are without him. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have a chance of connecting with God except for what Jesus did. And sometimes we just simply need a reminder that he's supposed to have our attention 
that he's supposed to have our affection, that he's supposed to get our effort. And when it's just a little easier, we drift. So this morning, as we come to take communion, I hope you'll do a gut check. I, I hope you'll understand that when Jesus said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me, what he wanted you to remember was that he's your provider and that you need him. That he deserves your attention. That he's worthy of your affection. That your effort honors God. Um, those who are helping with communion, if you could come forward, that would be great. Um, Jesus started this communion celebration at a Passover meal. Never done anything like this before. Nobody had seen this before. He took a piece of bread. They would have been sitting at a table in a big U shape, and he would have kind of gone into the middle of that and walked around, and he would have offered them the bread, looked them right in the eye, each one of them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And they would have each taken a piece. And they would have eaten it. And then um, they had a cup. Our cup's a little bit different. For them, there would have been a cup sitting on the table. And as Jesus would have taken that around, they would have drank the whole thing. It was very symbolic for them to take the whole cup down and then it would be refilled for the next person. So it would have taken a little while. It was about consuming all of this and Jesus was looking at them and saying, listen, this is my blood shed for you. And then he said to them, listen guys, I'm about to sacrifice, but I want you to remember this. I want you to remember because I know, I know that as humans, you'll drift and if you drift, you could end up being influenced, you could end up with affections misplaced, you could end up not caring or giving effort to our relationship ever again. And I want you, I want you to love me and to seek me. I'm gonna serve these guys and I, I want you to prepare yourselves for communion. I want you to spend some time just thinking about what's going on in your life. Has God gotten the attention, the affection, the effort from you that he truly deserves? And then I'm going to give you a few more directions.
we'll have three stations. There'll be two underneath the screens, one at the back door there. As the music starts, I'm going to ask you to just join in communion. If that's something that you want to do, just get up and form a line at um, wherever you're closest to. You'll walk up to somebody. They'll offer you the bread. And as you tear a little piece off, they're going to say, the body of Christ broken for you. And then you'll move to the next person. And um, at Waypoint, we just take and dip it in the cup. And that person's going to say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you take that, you can go back and sit at your table. You can worship with the band. You can pray. You can be quiet. Whatever you need at this point. I'm just going to ask you to talk to God about being your provider and knowing that without him, you would be nothing. I ask you to join us in communion. We are so glad you're able to experience what's happening here at Waypoint Community Church through our podcast. Our prayer is that these resources are a blessing to you. Please be sure to catch us again next time.